Welcome to episode 13 of A Thought for Food, a special series within the Science and the City podcast, produced by the Sackler Institute for Nutrition Science at the New York Academy of Sciences. I'm your host, David Hoffman. Episode 13, Eating Animals. This is the sixth and last chapter of our examination of the most American of sandwiches, the cheeseburger. And today, we're going to circle back around to where we began, beef. Let's begin today with a simple fact. Farming, any kind of farming, is hard work. It would be hard to think of a more high-overhead, high-risk business. You need a lot of land, a bunch of expensive equipment, and a lot of know-how. The hours are long, the work is dirty, and even if you do everything right, you're at the mercy of all kinds of things you can't control. The seasons, the weather, and the health of the plants and animals you're raising. A drought or a freak virus can wipe you out, kaput. Sometimes it's hard to imagine why anyone would want to be a farmer. But it's a good thing there are those who do, because all of us, no matter what we do for a living, are completely dependent on agriculture. It does nothing less than keep us all alive. One of the biggest challenges of raising cows, specifically, either for meat or milk, is that they're enormous animals that spend more or less the whole day eating. And so they need a lot of food. And their favorite food is grass, which takes a lot of empty space to grow in any great quantity. Here's the beef cattle farmer we've been speaking to this season, Lee Ranny of Kinderhook Farm just outside of Ghent, New York. One of these animals will eat between one and a half and two and a half percent of its body weight each day. A full-grown Angus or Hereford steer can weigh 1,500 pounds. So that's upwards of 40 pounds of grass per cow per day. As we said, growing that much grass can take a lot of land. Depends on how good the the land is. Out west, um, you can have, you know, the the rule of thumb in some areas is 50 to 100 acres for one cow. Um, In the east, it's closer ballpark to two acres per animal. But those are just very rough measures depending on the size of the animal, the, the, the quality of the grass and the soils. Because of the competition with, with recreational or, or housing, whatever you want to call it, um, it's very, very difficult to, to graze cattle and, and actually pay for the land. It is very difficult. Difficult as it is, Lee does graze his cattle. The beef produced on his farm is 100% grass-fed, meaning that after they're weaned off of milk, the cows only eat two things for the rest of their lives. Grass and hay, which is dried grass that Lee and his team store to feed their herd through the winter when the grass doesn't grow. The constantly rising cost of pasture land as it gets more and more scarce and more desirable for things other than grazing cows is one of the big reasons why a huge percentage of the cattle industry in the U.S. has moved away from feeding their cows exclusively grass, what's referred to as forage, and towards feeding them high-calorie blends made of cereal grains, almost always corn, mixed with all kinds of other plant material. Often things that are leftovers from other sectors of the food industry, like breweries. Another reason why grain feeding has become so popular is that you can finish cattle, meaning grow them to full size, much more quickly. Lee takes two years to finish a steer, but if it were grain-fed, it could be finished in less than one year. A useful analogy might be to think of grain as fast food for cattle. 
inexpensive, readily available, high-calorie food that's the subject of much scrutiny as to its nutritional value. So these, these animals have evolved to, to survive on a diet of forages. And when you feed them grain, um, you're giving them a simple starch. It's a different molecular structure. And the way their stomachs work, they use bacteria in their stomach to break down these cells. And the bacteria that break down forages are different than the bacteria that break down starches and grains. So if you give them just a little grain, it probably doesn't upset that balance too much. It's just like uh, getting just a little frosting on your cake. But you reach a point where if you give them too much grain, it's going to decrease the efficiency of them breaking down the forages. And uh, when you give them nothing but grains, then you do really screw up their system. It really, really goes contrary to their evolved digestive system. Americans have always been obsessed with beef. So it's fitting that the centerpiece of our national dish is a big old lump of it. Half a pound is pretty standard for a burger at your neighborhood bar and grill. According to numbers released by the American Meat Institute in 2010, the average American eats 28 pounds of ground beef every year. And that's just ground beef. That constant demand for beef and the ever-increasing cost of pasture land have caused the industry to develop to the point where the vast majority of cattle are raised in feedlots, places where thousands of animals are housed in pens and fed on grain mixtures. As a result of being kept in such close quarters, these animals are also much more easily exposed to disease than their pasture-raised cousins, so they're also given antibiotics as part of their daily regimen. There's a great deal of debate, speculation, and downright secrecy about how much of things like antibiotics cattle and feedlots are given, how much they need, and whether a necessity for medication proves that feedlots are a bad idea to begin with. Here's one of our favorite correspondents for this series, Michael McBurney from DSM Nutritional Products. It's a very multi-layered story in that um, there are many reasons that you, I think people end up choosing to have different opinions in terms of, of the care and maintenance of the animal, the environment that it's in. Um, there's two parts that there may be more disease if you have animals in high-intensity quarantine. It's just the same as people that are in densely populated areas are more likely to spread colds and flus amongst each other through contact than if you're living in very remote sporadic interactions. Um, a lot of the antibiotic use that has been used in animal nutrition isn't to prevent disease and infections, it's because you actually improve efficiencies of feed utilization. It means the animals, for the amount that you feed, they make better use of that feed and convert it. So especially in cattle or in pigs, it's because you sometimes can um, suppress organisms, bacterial, the microbiome, so that there's more efficient transfer and use of what's been consumed by the host animal 
and less utilization by the bacteria into their growth in waste products. If you're thinking about it from a business perspective, for X number of dollars of feed that I put into this animal, I get more growth of animal more to sell and maybe less waste to dispose of. There's also much debate about whether those antibiotics have a detrimental effect on us who eat the meat produced by the animals who are given them. So there is, there is evidence that if antibiotics um, aren't used appropriately in agricultural production, that there can be passover and, and it does affect then the use of those same antibiotics in humans because there's more tolerance within the environment, so they're not as effective. So I think that is a concern. How do we manage that? Um, both in animal agriculture, but also in, um, you know, it, it, it also transfers to parents' um, use of antibiotics for kids with ear infections. And whether we use the whole antibiotic for 10 days when it's prescribed or, or whether we only use it part-time. I mean, so there's many places of where um, it's not just agriculture where we're not necessarily, as a society, using antibiotics wisely. And so we need to think, I think, holistically around all of those, not just certain segments of it. One thing that cannot be debated, though, is that the feedlot system is the reason that we have access to such inexpensive beef in this country. Without feedlots, it would not be possible to go to your local drive-up window and buy a hamburger for $2. And it's important to remember that it's not only huge feedlots that grain feed their cows, particularly in the winter when hay is expensive and fresh grass is unavailable. Take, for instance, our dairy farmer friend for this season, Ben Freund, whose operation is the furthest thing from a feedlot and who does not give his cattle antibiotics unless they're sick but who does feed them grain as a supplement to the grass from his pastures. Here he is describing the typical winter menu. It's got the corn, the corn that we've taken, this is the entire corn plant, because remember, corn is a grass, and so they get a lot of, they get some forage value for that, and corn has also got the grains, so they get some concentrate value out of it as well. And that grain kernel, you can see that it doesn't look like a kernel, it's crushed. And that's pretty important too, so that when they crush that kernel, we process it when we make the corn silage, and that makes it a little more digestible for the cows and they get a little better energy out of it. The other things in here is you have grass, your traditional grass, and that gives a nice fiber and actually a little bit more protein to the ration. And then you've got uh, the supplements, which in here today we have brewer's grains, so you got your little bit of hops put in there. There's a vitamin packet in there, a little bit of salt, and the girls are, uh, they eat that and they're ready to go. You know, there's a lot of uh, press and a lot of people kind of talking a lot about feeding cows grain at all. Yep. You know, that they're, they're not designed for it, they're ruminants, they right. feed them anything but grass, you're doing them a disservice. Right. What, what do you say about that? Yeah, I, I, think, I think that's a great attitude for people to have. That, you know, you go out there, I think you should be as natural as possible and, and just, you know, do what you want to do. And I think that what people need is they need to have, you know, a certain number of acres for that person. Uh, he's going to need a little workforce to take and provide that. And then he's going to find out that uh, when everybody goes to that standard uh, what they believe to be a, uh, that appropriate management of animals, they're going to find out that they run out of space pretty quick. 
so they better be one of the first ones there and then people are people that can afford it uh, can have that elite attitude and they can go out there and, and say okay yeah we can afford ten dollars a pound but to me there's a certain in, built-in arrogance with that attitude that you know I'm gonna get a special level of what I perceive to be a perfect animal and I'm not gonna debate that with them if that's what they feel most comfortable eating I think they should but they have to realize that there's only gonna be a certain small percentage of the population on the face of the earth that's gonna be able to eat with them okay and that may take care of a lot of problems because you may go instead of having this population heading to nine billion maybe we're gonna head back to a billion and then, and then we can afford that, that little pristine world and, and let emotion drive to whatever we're gonna have to, to have for a food source. I don't think agriculture is one of those things where people necessarily get rich quick. I think it's kind of one of those things where you plot along and there's enough to do and there's enough to eat. But, and then, and then you're gonna produce things, but you wanna be able to produce them efficiently enough so that we can actually feed everybody in town, not just the 2% on the top. This is obviously an emotional issue, and I asked Lee if he ever feels an adversarial relationship with farmers who grain feed their cattle. Some of the conventional farmers take it as a, like you're judging them. Right. I mean, I, you know, we work hard, or I work hard not to uh, emit that attitude because I don't feel like that, but uh, some of them take it personally. But. You do judge them a little bit. I mean, you were saying, you know, cows aren't meant to eat that, and it's bad right, but, for them. But, there, That's but, a there's, but there's some, but, but, but judgments in, in a management sense. That's why I was saying earlier that there's no magic bullets. And so I'm, I'm, I'm not doing it because it's not my market, and it's not what I'm trying to do. But I'm not saying that it doesn't make sense to, to explore supplementing these cattle with something besides grass. I mean, I don't have all the answers. It's not my uh, protocol, and it's not what I'm doing, but uh, I don't think uh, it's evil or, or a bad thing necessarily. Do you think there's a place if for it's, it? Uh, well, or at least a place to explore it. One very good customer that I've gotten to be friends with is Michael Spector, who writes for The New Yorker. And, uh, you know, as he says, he buys our stuff. It's, our stuff is the stuff he eats. But his sort of premise and most of his articles for The New Yorker and his book is science still has to explore and try different things. So like he wrote the article in The New Yorker about the uh, test tube meat. You know, he likes to examine stuff like that. And uh, so, I mean, I think there are things that, uh, that uh, we can try. I mean, I, I really don't think I am. I'm certainly judging the extremes of people. I'm judging the, the giant feedlots that stuff them full of grain but th those are aberrations too and most people are just trying to figure out how to raise animals and do a good job of it all of this begs a question of course if meat were only a high-end luxury product or not available at all would that really be a bad thing do we as human beings need to eat meat well that's a complicated question Let's start by examining what nutritional value it has. The primary nutrient we get from meat is, of course, protein. But what exactly is protein, and why do we need it? Here's someone I hope you remember from the first episode of this season, Joe Muscolino. He's a chiropractor and kinesiologist who's written several textbooks about muscles and muscle function. 
protein is one of the major types of molecules in the human body. You have carbohydrate molecules, you have protein molecules, and you have fat, lipid molecules. Those are your three major types. Protein is the most dynamic. If you think of transformers, the, the, the toys that kids would play with, that you have something that's in one shape and it can change its shape to become another. The type of molecules in the human body that are responsible for that type of movement of things on a microscopic level in our body are protein molecules. Fats and carbohydrates can't do that. Proteins can because they can form so many bonds and when you bond one protein molecule with another, what will happen is it causes a transfigural shape of the amino acids that changes its shape, literally changes its shape like a transformer turns from being a car into a, a robot. Our muscles are largely made of protein because it's that shape-shifting ability that gives muscles the power to flex and stretch and therefore give our body movement. But there's protein all over our body and we use it for all kinds of things. Here's Stephen Pintaro, a professor of nutrition at the University of Vermont. And proteins serve a number of functions in the body. Proteins are used to um, carry material in the blood. For example, many people probably heard of hemoglobin, which is a very well-known protein, and its function in the blood is to carry oxygen. And there are many other proteins in the blood that have other functions, and there are many proteins in the body that function as enzymes, so they, they help reactions occur in the body. There are other proteins that function as hormones, and there are other proteins that function to make uh, your body move, so muscle is made up of a number of different types of proteins. So proteins form or function in all different kinds of ways in the body. Structurally, proteins are chemical chains built of smaller molecules called amino acids. Actually, it, the name actually sort of describes it. An amino acid is a, a, a small compound uh, that is made up of an amine, what's called an amine group, which is sort of a ammonia or NH3 group, and an acid group. In the case of amino acids, it's what's known as a carboxylic acid attached to a carbon, and then also attached to that carbon is another group, uh, and that group is what makes one amino acid different than another. See, in the simplest form, there's an amino acid called glycine, which just has a hydrogen on, as that extra group. And then there are other amino acids that have much more complex uh, groups of that carbon. They're all different uh, types of side chains, and each of those different side chains contributes a different property that, to that amino acid. What makes a muscle protein different from a blood protein, different from a hormone protein, different from an enzyme, is just the amount of these individual, these 20 different amino acids, and uh, the order of these 20 different amino acids in each different protein. Some of these amino acids can be produced in our bodies by recombining other nutrients we might eat. But there are nine of the 20 that we can't make we have to eat them in order to keep everything running properly. Nutritionists speak of dietary sources of protein as being high or low quality, or sometimes complete or incomplete, based on how many of these nine essential amino acids they contain. Now, we can get protein from plants, but most plant sources are incomplete. They're missing some of these essential amino acids, so you have to eat them in the right combinations in order to build complete proteins. This wasn't understood chemically until the 20th century, but it's really interesting that many traditional dishes 
are made of combinations of ingredients that dovetail to yield a complete profile of essential amino acids. Two famous examples, rice and beans each contain incomplete proteins, but rice and beans together are complete. Same for chickpeas and sesame seed paste, each incomplete, but combine them into hummus and bingo, complete protein. Animal sources though, meat, poultry, fish, all yield complete proteins without having to combine them with anything. This is basically because the animal has already done the work of building complete amino acid profiles for us. They need more or less the same proteins we do, and so they're all present in their muscles. Also, while some of them are not present in vast amounts, if you take a nose-to-tail approach to carnivorism, you can get all of the nutrients you need to survive just from eating animals. There are some traditional cultures, the Inuit in Alaska and the Maasai in Africa are two examples, that more or less do just that. Here's Dr. McBurney again. Well, so Eskimo is part of being in, a, in an environment with a very restricted dietary choices, and especially during long winter months when there wasn't a lot of plant um, food available. Um, then when they were hunting and harvesting caribou, they would eat part of their diet, would come out of the digestive system of that caribou as a way to, in order to get fiber sources and in order to get organisms that that live in a ruminant off of fiber and themselves produce essential nutrients like vitamin B12 is produced by organisms that are fermenting. Um, cellulose and hemicellulose and other fibrous materials by choosing some of the and eating some of the food from the digestive system they could help complete their nutrient intakes. Having said all that though if you're thoughtful about it, you absolutely can eat a perfectly healthy and balanced diet without ever needing to eat meat, or for that matter, without eating any animal products at all. It's a choice, um, and one can be a vegan and have a healthy, balanced diet nutritionally. Um, it has brings with it certain restrictions. Um, in terms of choices, obviously. I mean, one of the challenges is making sure you get all of the nine essential amino acids. But that can be done by making sure you're consuming legumes as well as cereal grains, so you have an intake of lysine and methionine that you need. Um, it's more challenging to get some things like vitamin B12 that are rich in meat products, so you may need to take a dietary supplement, not necessarily, but more likely there are some areas that um, that you have to do it. But it, it's, a, it's a life choice. It's a personal choice. Many nutritionists, in fact, will tell you that Americans eat far too much meat, and their diets would be healthier if they were to cut it back to no or nearly no meat at all. Here's another of our regulars, Maudine Nelson from Columbia University. I think it's a, a good decision for a couple of reasons. I think human beings can do fine without eating the flesh of another, another living, breathing critter. The nutrients that you get out of meat you can get from plants. I think it would, for me to do it, or for most of the people I know, whether they are patients or family members, it's going to create too much of a, of a seismic shift 
to be successful at it. But the more vegan people are on the plate, I think the better. In terms of the big picture, the health profile, the low inflammatory effect, the um, lower cost. I'm not sure if I'm savvy enough to talk about the impact on the food system because our food systems are so interrelated that if everybody cut their meat intake in half or down 75%, that's going to have repercussions on everything, on the price of bread, you know, ultimately. So that needs to be thought out a little more. Um, But I would say as a clinical nutritionist, it's a good move. And the closer we can all move to that, the better. I don't think it's necessary that everyone stop eating products that come from animals, eggs, milk, cheese, and flesh, beef, lamb, pork, veal. So if you don't want to stop eating the critters, no problem. But I think it's a good idea to eat less of them. What she just touched on about the food system as a whole is an astonishingly complex set of variables when you start diving into it. For instance, some will say that it's unsustainable to eat meat because raising animals takes up so much land. And there's definitely a problem there to be considered as the world population continues to grow. On the other hand, in temperate climates, vegetables are seasonal. So if you're eating spinach and strawberries in New York City in February, Those vegetables have been flown in from somewhere in the Southern Hemisphere, which require jet fuel and gasoline for trucks. And there are many who would observe that our use of petroleum products is also dangerously unsustainable. Not to mention human rights and fair trade issues involving the labor forces who are picking those strawberries, whose salaries might need to be kept very low for the price of imported foods off-season to be similar to the price of local ones in-season. So which is less unsustainable? eating meat or eating vegetables. All I'm saying is it's not a simple question, and there are thoughtful and reasonable arguments on both sides. It's worth remembering in all of this that the whole question of whether or not you choose to eat meat or have any choice at all about what you're going to eat is an extremely recent one. For all of prehistory and most of history, So therefore, for almost all of the people who have ever lived on the planet, the threat of starvation has been a constant concern. And so to turn up your nose at a viable, tasty, nutrient-rich source of food on philosophical grounds would have been much more difficult. You ate what you could get your hands on, or you didn't eat at all. And the thing that really makes it an option for so many people today is that modern industrial agriculture— the same system that has given us feedlots, has done such a good job of making sure that there is in this country a steady supply of grains and vegetables as well as meat year-round. Here's Maudine again. The ethical question is sort of a luxury item. I think in the history of all of us on this globe for thousands of years, there was a balance of taking animals for food that wasn't necessarily done for sport or for um, like disregard for the for the the other the other lives that we share the globe with. So to say that we shouldn't we don't have the right to or that we shouldn't, I'm not quite sold on that. But I think the far extreme of that, I mean, on that curve, way off to the right, the factories 
of slaughtering and to in order to create such a huge supply of chops and wings and and burgers can be a little disquieting if you ever actually witness it you might really really stop and think do I need to have it that badly that I need to see this kind of handling of of other animals who other sentient beings and frankly if a roach goes up the wall he will not make it to the ceiling if I'm fast enough and that's a sentient life so we really do have these kinds of uh, inconsistencies with you know where it's fair and where it's unfair so we do kind of put our head in the sand a little bit about it and say okay I'll be um, decidedly dumb about this one and passionate about that and I guess that's how we are. We're complicated critters, too, aren't we? <laughs> yeah. Thanks for listening to A Thought for Food, a special series within the Science and the City podcasts produced by the Sackler Institute for Nutrition Science at the New York Academy of Sciences. Special thanks to our experts in this episode, Lee Ranney of Kinderhook Farm, Ben Freund of Freund's Farm, Joe Muscolino, Stephen Pintaro of the University of Vermont, Michael McBurney of DSM Nutritional Products, and Maudine Nelson of Columbia University. And the others who appeared in the rest of this season, Paul Kinstead of the University of Vermont, Alan Kaufman of the Pickle Guys, Jake Elmitz of the Green Grape Provisions, Patrick Leger and Teresa Vigiano of First Field Ketchup, Andrew Smith, and Tom and Carol Sinclair. To learn more about the Sackler Institute, please visit us on the web at nyas.org slash do slash nutrition, on the Sackler Institute group on LinkedIn, and on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash Sackler Nutrition Science, where you can see photo galleries from our visits to some of the places we feature in this series. And please feel free to give us your feedback on this or any Science in the City program via email to scienceandthecity at nyas.org.